to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, Joseph Simkovic, author of How to Kiss the Universe, and Ms. Aida, author of A List of Demonic Names, A Pocket Guide for the Paranormal Investigator, Exorcist, Psychic, and Metaphysical Practitioner. Monthly co-host, Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. And this episode is being sponsored by Ginger Glasser. You can find Ginger Glasser at tarotbyginger.com. If you want to get a tarot reading, um, whether it's just for fun, or if you're looking to make some type of decision in your life and want to know the energies that are at play, I highly recommend her. And you can find her at tarotbyginger.com. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Jim Willis. And Jim has a whole lot of stuff going on. Um, he's, one of his books out from the trilogy is The Wizard in the Wood. He um, also has a little thing on his website called Hatred in the Muse, a parable for our time, which is a free PDF download. And he has... I don't know, close to a dozen other books out there as well in doing conferences. How are you, Jim? Real good, Gary. Good to see you again. You too. I always love talking to you. Oh, well, thank you. you a appreciate lot. appreciate it. I it's always good to always good to be with you because we never know where the discussion is going. That makes it fun. I said I don't plan anything. <laughs> <laughs> Serendipity is a wonderful thing. Yeah. So so well, let's start with the, uh, the, the, the muse, because I just read it right before we came on. It's fresh in my mind, and I was reading it, and I'm thinking, like, how applicable this is to what's going yeah. on. And you yeah. said it came from a dream? Yeah, well, I can't really call it a dream. I wasn't sleeping. I was awake. I was right. meditating. And uh, it just seemed to be something I needed to write about. Uh, my background, you know, we've talked about it before and in, in previous episodes, my background was in music, and uh, there are times when you're playing with other musicians um, when everything just clicks. You're on the same page, and, and it just flows. And then there are times when you just can't get through. Uh, people are on different wavelengths. It's almost as if they're trying to, well, interfere uh, with each other. Uh, ego gets in the way mm. and then no matter how hard you try the harder you try sometimes the worse it seems to get mm. and that was the, the basis I was uh, meditating and I received this oh I want to call it a kind of a, a sketchy vision of what would happen if an orchestra got together and uh, there was nothing but dissension what could, con what could the conductor do really uh, if everybody was going against him. 
And uh, so I set this up, and of course, I don't want to give away the ending of Hatred and the Muse, so people go to my website and, and read it, uh, www.jimwillis.net. Um, and what what could happen if all of a sudden we just acknowledge that? Uh, could we bring back the magic? And that's that's the story of Hatred and the Muse. It's just a little parable, and uh, it's let's call it a waking dream. But when I saw it in vision, I, it was almost as if a voice in my head was saying, write. <laughs> so I had to write it. And it was a while back, but uh, it seems like for today's oh, political climate, which not just in the United States, but in the West as well, and uh, where we disagree about everything nowadays, it seems, uh, we've just lost the magic. And how can we get it back? That's what the story is about. So I hope people do read it. Thank you for bringing it up. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. I, I really like it. What I really liked about it is like, you can go as far as saying that we can all hate each other, but still accomplish something together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, You know, I remember the, the days that are long gone. I, I used to live up in uh, uh, Massachusetts. And uh, Tip O'Neill was our senator and you know or the house rather and uh you know he was a very controversial character but he was way off on the political left and uh, ronald reagan was uh, elected president and of course he was on the political right and nowadays it would seem like those two would be mortal enemies but they both tell wonderful stories about uh ronald reagan just stopping into tip o'neill's office sitting kicking back having a cup of coffee or even <laughs> the two Irishmen uh, sharing Irish stories or having a mm -hmm. beer together or something like that. And, you know, they, they could be worlds apart politically, but still get together and talk and, and share each other's stories and, and laugh and joke. Uh, it's just some, it's missing nowadays. It's missing. Um, and, and it, it, I, I see it through the metaphor of music being a musician. Um, when that time comes, when you can take people, I, I used to play in a jazz quintet. You couldn't get five more different people than we were. Um, totally different backgrounds. Totally different. I, mean, I was, you know, trained in classical music. The the, um, the drummer was trained in jazz. The keyboard guy was a, a real precocious high school kid who just really could play. Um, bass, bass player as conservative as you can get, and the uh, the tenor sax player and the guy who played tenor sax and Barry in, in the and baritone sax in the quintet. His uh, his brother actually played trombone with uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. So you know that was his background. And uh, there was one night when we were out, we were playing together. Five totally different guys coming from five totally different musical backgrounds and and even cultural backgrounds. And uh, it was just like something just clicked that night. It was so hot. We we finished a set that was just uh, absolutely off the charts. We didn't know where we were going, but we could just see what everybody else was going to do. And, of course, it was all improvised. So, well, we finished, and uh, I just put down my horn after I finished. I said, wow. And the sax player said to me, yeah, nothing like it. He said, it's better than sex. <laughs> the only trouble was his mic was still live and his wife was sitting in the front row. <laughs> I don't know. 
I don't know if he ever lived it down, but I just can't help but think that it is, it's always possible. And whenever I want to lose hope, whenever I just get so discouraged and, um, it's just, uh, one of those times I like to try to remember that, well, people can change, things can happen and, uh, our better angels can come out and, uh, you just have to hope for that, I guess. I don't know what else we can do. Yeah. And I think this ties directly into, you know, well, your trilogy mm-hmm. and what it represents. Because my opinion is the, how we ended up here was through ego. Yeah. You know, we, we let go of our spiritual, magical yeah. l- life-giving mm-hmm. nature yes. and have become too... What happens, I think it happens, is like now we actually believe our ego 100% rather than using it as a tool for survival. Yeah, that's a wonderful way of putting it, Gary, I think. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, the whole idea of the trilogy, uh, I was moved to write that. Um, uh, and and it's, it's about ego's rise to power and narcissism. Uh, and it's about us putting our ego first all the time. And... It starts with the story of uh, Merlin, the magician. Um, Merlin lived in a time, obviously, we're going to assume for a minute that there was a historical Merlin. There, there mm-hmm. probably wasn't, but <laughs> whatever the case. In in the story, at least, he lived in a time when um, the old religion, paganism, uh, natural religion, was on its way out. He was Draco, the dragon. Uh, and he was being pushed out by the um, the Christian influx, and of course his uh, Merlin's protege Arthur was also born a pagan, but he was raised in a Christian family, became a Christian. And during the time of Merlin, uh, the natural ways were really coming to the fore. It was a time of mystery and magic, and Merlin didn't necessarily perform magic; he just did magic by being Merlin. And then along came King Arthur, and uh, the culture that Arthur represented moved from the woods, uh, the natural realm, into the city, Camelot, which is what's happened to us. You know, we become a, we were a people of um, the 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 fields and you know, people who you know, went out into the wilderness, and we become you know pretty largely a, a urban culture now. And it's a different way of approaching it. Um, whereas before, uh, people would go out into the woods for a spiritual quest and all that kind of thing, and and go to the caves and go to the secret ponds and, and, and lakes and things like that, and where they would put out offerings for the gods. During Arthur's time, very shortly within one generation, the Christian knights of the round table were out looking for the Holy Grail. Uh, they were seeking Christ. Um, and uh, it, we changed. The world changed during that. And so the first book of the trilogy, of course, is try to, uh, how, do, uh, how did that happen? What, how do you react when that happens? And which is very important for us today. The second book of the trilogy uh, was based on Robin Hood and his knights. Robin Hood was a person of the city. He was a, a uh, he, had a, a, he was royalty in, in, in the city, and uh, he was forced out, forced to go be live in the woods. And how did he combat it? How did he make that change? That's the same question we have to make. 
how do we live in a world where uh, everything has turned um, you know, so toxic in so many ways? Well, he gathered around himself a, a, the band of merry men, a group of real um, compatible people. But each of them had a different skill. Little John and Friar Tuck and uh, Much the Miller's son and Alan Adale, they all had different talents. But when they merged those talents together, they could combat the tremendous ego and narcissism that is represented in the Robin Hood story by uh, the Sheriff of Nottingham and by Prince John, who wanted to become the king and, and force his brother out. So the second book of the trilogy was how to live uh, within that kind of culture. Um, we establish ourselves by getting a group of people around us, like-minded mm. people who we can we can communicate with and share with and, and join together. And then the third book of the trilogy is about returning the magic. It's uh, based on the story of uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And Snow White was literally uh, poisoned by the ego, narcissistic, evil queen. And uh, uh, how did she managed to overcome that. Uh, strangely enough, the Walt Disney <laughs> version really ruined it uh, <laughs> for us because he says that she overcame it after she had taken the, the, the bite out of the poisoned apple. The Walt Disney movie said she was restored by the kiss of the prince from on high. Well, that didn't happen that way in the original story. In the original story, she gained, um, she regained her life and regained her magic by coming in contact with earth magic. Uh, and uh, the earth magic brought her back, and then the prince came. In each of these cases, though, in the case of Merlin, and in the case of Robin Hood, and in the case of Snow White, after they had retained the magic, or after they had, in effect, finished the story, um, in a sense, uh, they all died, um, in either metaphorically or in Snow White's case, literally, and Merlin, but Merlin didn't die. He went into the crystal cave and awaited it coming. And Robin Hood lived on in the legend and the stories. And Snow White was uh, brought back from the death in her crystal casket by coming in touch with him. And after that happened, after they had uh, um, obtained that, then the help came in the form of royalty, in the sense of of Merlin, it was Arthur. In the, uh, in the sense of uh, Robin Hood, it was the return of King Richard. And in the case of Snow White, it was the uh, return of the mysterious prince. So when people get really down in this age and they say, we need help from on high, uh, the magic prince, we need the prince to come and we need the Messiah to come or we need Jesus to return or we need Tecumseh to come back at the end of uh, Indian culture here in the, in the East. When that happens, uh, and people say, you know, we're looking to outside help, I like to say, no, that's not the answer. The answer is we have to find it within. And if we can solve this, if we can, we have the capacity, if, if we can solve these problems, and if we can restore the, the real magic of life, then we'll realize that the help was out there waiting for us to do this all along. Um, so I, I don't really uh, like to agree too much with those who say we need the uh, we need aliens to return and take over Earth and, and, and save us from ourselves, or we need Jesus to come back, or we need this, or we need that. No, I think the capacity is all within us. As a matter of fact, I think that's why we're here in the first place, to fight that fight. 
and to uh, realize our spiritual capabilities. We are we are spiritual beings in a physical body, and we are we now have the mistake. Just as you said a minute ago, we've made the mistake of thinking that the physical body is the reality. Uh, we made the mistake of thinking that uh, the physical life and the ego, rather, is is in charge. No, it isn't. We're we can be in charge. We just can't give up to it. That's all. And I think we have to do that. There's a, a wonderful quote that Plato has in the uh, Timaeus uh, when he's talking about the Atlantis legend. Mm -hmm. And Plato says, For many generations they obeyed the laws, that's the Atlanteans, again, it is not important whether Atlanta really, Atlantis really existed or you think it's a myth, for the purposes that we're talking about it, it's the story that's the important Plato says, for many generations they obeyed the laws and loved the divine to which they were akin. The divine, they were akin to the divine. They reckoned that qualities of, of character were far more important than their present prosperity. Boy, that's a, that's a bumper sticker. Quality of character is much more important than prosperity. So, he said, they bore the burden of their wealth and possessions lightly, and they did not let their high standard of living intoxicate them or make them lose their self-control. He might as well be talking about us, because that's exactly what we have done. But then he went on to say, when the divine element, when the divine element in them became weakened and their human traits became predominant, there it is. When their divine element weakened and their human traits became predominant, they ceased to be able to carry their prosperity with moderation. And Atlantis fell into the sea. Plato lived, what, 2,500 years ago? Or, I mean, I mean uh, 2,500 years ago. And um, <clears throat> he may as well have been talking about us. We're right at that point in history right now. Uh, the divine element in us is becoming weakened. Even the, the, the church and the synagogue and the mosque has become so political and become a reason for war rather than a reason for compassion and love. And people are standing up in all of these religious institutions and, and using their religion to fight somebody else or something like that, using that as an excuse to go to war. When, when that becomes weakened, and when our human traits of ego and vanity and lust for power and greed, when that becomes predominant, then we cannot carry our prosperity with moderation anymore. And down we go, just like Atlantis. Boy, I didn't mean to preach, but <laughs> Plato, Plato offers a pretty good text there for a preacher. He does, right? <laughs> it's very... <laughs> Uh, applicable to our current situation, that is for sure. Mm -hmm. um, you, you've written, you know, too, a lot of books about out-of-body experience, astral travel, and and breaking away from our human shell that we believe is yeah. us and going yeah. and experiencing other realms and other consciousness and yes. other beings yeah. and accessing knowledge from places like the Akashic Records and mm -hmm. all that. Um do you think that, that people connecting to the idea or experimenting with different ways of detaching from ourselves is something that could help us 
tame the ego. The, yeah, I think it's the only thing that can help us. I really do. We're not going to get there intellectually. You know, we our minds can be taken off, and we can believe anything. You know, if we try, we have to get. Uh, we have to evolve. Uh, when I wrote Faith, Trust, and Belief, uh, oh, this is probably twenty years ago now. When I wrote Faith, Trust, and Belief, I came to the conclusion that the next step of our evolution has to be in the human heart. Um, and I know for a fact that it works because it, it happened to me. When I uh, came out here to live in the woods of, uh, of South Carolina, when after I retired from 40 years of ministry, and that was some 50 years ago, um, when I came out here to live in the woods, I came out here to experience the divine. I, I, I'd, I'd done talking about it. I, I was a college professor teaching comparative religion, and I talked about religion. And I was a preacher who stood up in the pulpit and talked about God. I needed to experience it myself. And uh, I knew that I couldn't do it if I went back to live in the city again. It's just too hectic, too noisy, too too much stuff going on, too much responsibility. I, I needed to get clear of that. So I came out here to live in the woods and go on a retreat and that's exactly what I've been doing for the last oh, 16 years now. Um, and it's just so important because it was only when I could finally quiet down. And it, it didn't happen overnight. It, it took oh, a good year or two before I slowed down enough to where I could start to meditate. And when I had my first out-of-body experience, which was really um, an, an accident <laughs> almost, but then when I began to come after it, I began to, all of a sudden, something happens when when you can get out of the rat race. Uh, and the rat race can do with one last rat, you know. And so we need to get out. And when you get out of that rat race, and when you quiet down, and you begin to not only just think about nature or appreciate nature, but commune with nature, and you realize that's really the source from where this material world evolved, um, you have to think about that, and when you do, it it changes you. It really does. You all of a sudden, when you're on the outside, you can see it so much clearly, so much more clear. I mean, and uh, it's. Uh, I think that's what we need to do as a human race. I think we need to declare a timeout. Um, I think we say we need to say to ourselves, okay, everybody in the human race, let's let's stop all of the the uh, the madness just for a while and let's spend a year together in meditation i mean it's not going to happen but wouldn't it be wonderful if it did it'd be a great maybe that's another parable i could <laughs> but i think if we can do that if we can all find in our own way those things that take us out of ourselves and and see other people for for who they are they're living breathing uh energy sources of from the source themselves um i don't know i like i like to if you don't mind my talking too much i i i'd, I'd love to give you a, a a guideline that has really helped me Please. and maybe it'll help people who will listen i call it a slice of reality and i've written about in a couple of books uh, like uh, supernatural gods and i i've um, written about it in oh i forgot what other books are i I can't even remember which other one it is, but it, you, you can find it through my website, I'm sure. Uh, I like to to think of us as being out here on a on a hub of a wheel, 
that is spinning around and around. We're out here on the edge, and it's the material manifestation. But this isn't our real home. We're just coming out here to visit because we're coming out here to learn. And how that works is this. This wheel is going around and around, something like the wheel of samsara that the Hindus talk about. But in the middle of the wheel, there's a point where there's no movement, where it's perfectly still. And that's what I like to call the source. Uh, you can call it anything you want. Some people call it God or Manitou or um, Brahman or whatever. Those are just words, and that's why I like to use the source. And in the source, there's perfect unity, and there's perfect stillness. Uh, everything is one. It's just a, a perfect rest, a perfect love, perfect compassion. But there's one thing that you can't experience when you're in perfection of unity and perfection of... of um, of stillness and that's you can't know what it's like to be an individual when everything is one right. and the source um, uh, needs this experience in order to grow so I think each one of us when we're in the source makes a courageous decision to move out from the source and to experience for ourselves the idea of individuality so we leave the source. Picture yourself as a little energy, a little uh, bolt of energy that leaves the source. And when you leave the source, the first place you reach is a, the area that I like to call consciousness. It's a dimension called consciousness. Um, not only Albert Einstein, but also Stephen Hawking called it the mind of God. Mm -hmm. And there in the mind of God, for the first time, I mean, we're still connected together, but we have the idea of individuality. And we may stay there for a while and until we experience it, until we, we grow up and learn how to use it. But then we have to leave that dimension and go to the, the next dimension. But in order to get to that next dimension, we have to pass through a field. And I believe that's called the Akashic field. The Akashic field is a place of possibilities and probabilities. Uh, we've probe this now with our math and with our science um, the quantum reality we can call it uh, it's it's that place of, of infinite possibility uh, now we still haven't obtained individuality but at least we have an idea of what it is uh, Plato talked again about the idea of horseness and horse uh, a, a horse is a material being that comes and goes and lives and dies but horseness is an idea that is manifested by the horse. Uh, and so individuality in, in the Akashic field is that place of, of possibilities. When we pass through the Akashic field, we enter the next great dimension or realm, and I like to call that quantum reality or thoughts and intentions. And there in quantum reality... Um, we now have the idea of where we're going and what we're doing. But quantum reality, doesn't it, it's the world of the very, very tiny, of course, so it doesn't have mass yet. Well, how does quantum reality take on mass? Well, it passes through another field, and it's the newly discovered Higgs field. Mm -hmm. uh, the Higgs field is described by scientists as that, that field through which uh, energy becomes matter. Einstein even put an, uh, an equation to it. E equals mc squared. Energy 
is the same as mass times the speed of light squared. And when we go through that, like I say, newly discovered Higgs field that wasn't really discovered until the uh, the, the uh, experiments with the the uh, particle physics, the, the particle collider at, at CERN. When we pass through that Higgs field, we come in, we're slowed down, so to speak, and we enter into the dimension that I think we live into. I call it material reality manifested, or our perception realm. And that's where we live right now. We're out here trying to experience what an individual is. And when this time is done, and this body dies, this material manifestation dies and ceases to function, I think we return to the source, but we return to the source carrying with us our experience. In other words, this, was, this is a school that we're living in. We're learning. We're learning how to be individuals. We're learning both the good things and the dangers of individuality. And sad to say, we're learning more about the dangers, I think, than the goodness, because the dangers just are, are, are really severe out here. Dangers that we couldn't possibly imagine when we were one in unity and perfect right. peace. So out here we experience this, and we live lives, sometimes wonderful lives, sometimes tragic lives, but we live them and live them and live them again until we have obtained all that we can, and then we take this back with us to the source, and the source grows because of it, because of our experience. Uh, and eventually, I think, probably, when every single possible experience is, is manifested and uh, in this in this multiverse, who knows what's going on in other places and everything else, but when it's all accomplished, the source will have grown. God is learning, in other words. Mm -hmm. And we are that part of God, uh, which is out here, we're the foot soldiers. We're out here, boots on the ground, learning, and we take it back with us. So no matter how bad life seems, no matter how bad civilization or culture seems, I think I find it helpful for me, at least, to remember that now there's a purpose for it. We go back. And when we go back, we are taking valuable experience with us. It it gives me hope to know that this is not going to go on forever. That's true. I you know, like I've had my own out of body experience which caused me to kind of have this idea that you know, I'm not my body. There's, yeah. there's more yeah. to what's going on than just my body and what I know because the experiences that I that I've had are indescribable. I can't yeah. really put them in, into words. You know, I can't make no. sense of it. Yeah. it. It is beyond the capacity of what my brain is able to do. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Language was invented to describe things on, in this perception realm. It doesn't work once we move outside this perception realm, as you well know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it it just isn't adequate. I I love the Hindu concept. Of, of just trying to describe divinity. Um, the Brahman Atman idea of Hinduism I think is wonderful. A Hindu, uh, in, in Hindu, at the basis of all that, well, of course, Hinduism isn't just one religion, it's a huge family of religion. But at the basis of it all is this idea that there is the unknowable, and that's what we call God. And Hinduism says that if you try to des describe Brahman, um, and you put words to Brahman, you can't do it. If you think you've got him, you've put a frame around Brahman, and you can't put a frame around divinity. You can't put a frame around the unknowable. And so, in a sense, you can't even talk about Brahman. You can't say Brahman is this. All you can say is Brahman is like 
this or that. And the wonderful uh, Hindu uh, rishis went even farther, and then they talked about the divinity within. They called it Atman. Closest English word is probably the word soul. Um, and that's the idea of Brahman is the imminent within us. And the great realization of the rishis was that thou art that. Atman is Brahman. Not only the unknowable is out there, but the unknowable is in here, mm -hmm. in the human heart. I, I tried to teach this once. The first time, uh, when I taught my very first course in comparative religion, I used to teach, the first semester was Hinduism and Buddhism, and then the second semester was uh, the, uh, the monotheistic religions of right. Judaism, Christianity and Islam. And uh, so I, I wasn't familiar with Hinduism at the time, except from what I had read. And uh, I was supposed to give a great lecture on the basis of Hinduism, Brahman and Atman. I wanted to make sure I got it right. So I called a friend of mine who had a little shop downtown. And uh, he every morning he would go in, he had his altar, and he would put his candles and light the candles and say his prayers. And I wanted to make sure I got it right. So I called him up and I said, hey, I've got to deliver this, uh, this uh, talk for my night class tonight about Brahman, Atman. Can I run it by you? And he said, yeah, yeah, come on out. So I went out and I caught him during lunch hour at the shop when things were kind of slow. And I gave him a quick thumbnail sketch of my of my uh, uh, what my lecture was going to be. And, and he was great. He was nodding his head up and down, you know, and saying, yeah, yeah, go on, go on, go on. So I kept on saying, you know, Brahman is unexplainable. You can't talk about Brahman. You know, yeah, yeah. You know. So I said, so did I get it right? And he nodded his head up and down and said, no. <laughs> I said, what? He said, you're talking about something you can't talk about. I said, this is a school. i got to give a test on this stuff. And he says, well, okay, but just remember that this isn't the reality. So it, it was a great lesson. So I went that night, and I gave my lecture, and I had a great class of students. You know, nobody ever takes comparative religion because they have to. They take it because they want to. Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, I had wonderful students. And uh, probably my best student was a kid named Paul. He used to sit in the back row, and, oh, he was just great talking all the time. He would carry on. We'd have all these conversations going with the whole class would get involved. It was great. So I gave the lecture, and everybody was saying, I got it, got it, got it. I felt pretty good about the whole thing. Till it came time, because it was a public school, a community college, I had to give a test. They insist on it. Well, I hate giving tests, especially about religion, but I had to do it. I had to give everybody a grade. So I had one part of the test was for five points. Um, construct a well-constructed paragraph or well-written paragraph about the concept of, well, who Brahman and Atman are. And uh, the kids all started writing and, you know, they wrote their paragraphs and took the papers home that night and next morning in, uh, in my office correcting uh, I came to Paul's paper and he hadn't even answered the question and oh man I was so disappointed I said oh Paul you're my best student what's that well I, the next night I went out and I handed back the papers and there's Paul sitting in the back he look, he gets his paper and he looks at it he got a 95 because there was a 5 point I had to take 5 points off because he skipped the question and uh, he raises his hand, he's grinning like a Cheshire cat, and he says, Professor Willis, did everybody answer question four? And I said, well, Paul, they at least tried. He said, so you're telling me I'm the only one that got it right? 
yeah. I said, you're, you're right. You're, you're absolutely right. You can't put it into words. I had to give him five points for turning in a, a blank question. <laughs> but he was the only one that got it. I didn't even get it, you know. Uh, so it was, it was a real eye-opener. But that's what I think we're up against when we're trying to talk about the the unknowable. And like you say, you have an out-of-body experience where you go outside of our perception realm where, where language like English doesn't exist. How are you going to describe it when you come back? And that's why so many people say, I've heard this so many times when people have had an out-of-body experience, it was more real there than it is here. And somebody spoke to me, well, how'd they speak to you? Oh, I don't know. It wasn't with words. It was just, you know, with thought. I just somehow knew. I think that's that's what we're facing. And uh, that's going to be the answer, I think. We've all got to do it, though. Yeah. It also goes right along with what you say about quantum physics. You say if you understand quantum physics, yeah. then you don't, you don't really understand don't quantum understand. physics. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I, you know, the, the science, that's where science and religion really come together and I think agree. So. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, when, when science separated from religion uh, and uh, during the, the whole Galileo thing, and they said, well, okay, science will talk about the hows and religion will talk about the whys. And they went on two separate streets. And those two highways, really, of science and religion have been running parallel to each other. They're both mm -hmm. looking for the truth different ways. And they've been running parallel. And I think the exciting thing about our generation, I think they're starting to come together. Yeah. If you want great scientific thoughts, uh, man, turn to the the physics guys. They're, I mean, the, the people there, they're doing wonderful work. And you know, we're talking about all this mind blowing stuff like multiverses and string theory and dimensions that we don't even know are there. And how can a particle be in two places at the same time? And what's the deal with Schrodinger's cat? You know, all this kind of stuff. I think they're beginning to come together. It, the ancient uh, he, the ancient Hindus um, intuited all this stuff, and they talked about it in parable. Now the modern scientists are beginning to discover it with mathematics, and they're talking about it with a different language. It's just two different languages, that's all. But they're talking about the same thing. Uh, you talk, you you can take Hindu language and try to describe uh, a quantum theory, and it comes out almost the same. Yeah, uh, it's just really wonderful. Yeah, the Dalai Lama really focuses on bringing oh, the two together. Yeah, yeah, that's what he's been doing he's, for like the last I don't know twenty or thirty years. Yeah, what a what a man, what a man. I had a I had a good friend one time who was a state cop, and uh, Dalai Lama came to uh, Boston to do a. Uh, a series of lectures mm -hmm. and then from Boston he was taken to Worcester where he was supposed to do another series of lectures and of course state police were there to watch over him and everything else and um, when it came time to actually transport him he was going to be transported in a, a, a state police car but they had three of them two of them were decoys and one of them was going to have and neither you know none of the drivers none of the state cops knew for sure whether they were going to have the Dalai Lama or not. But my friend uh, was the one who Dalai Lama got in his car, and the two you know, uh, other cars went out, the, the decoy cars went out, and he says, so here I am, sitting with me and my partner, and the Dalai Lama is in the back seat. <laughs> he said, what do you do? So he said, we drove out to Worcester. And I said, well, what did you talk about? 
I mean, did, did he tell you all kinds of neat, interesting stuff? And John just shook his head and he said, no, he kept asking me questions, but they were all about me. <laughs> he got me talking about me. All he wanted to, he didn't want to impart any great wisdom. He wanted to find out who I was as a person. What a wonderful man the yeah. Dalai Lama is. Just a fantastic guy. He's, he's, he's a, a very holy figure, and you can't often say that about leaders of great religions. No, no. And I think, too, he recently even stepped down from that. Like, he said that he doesn't want to, like, lead his, uh, you know, as a religion anyway. Yeah, yeah. The, my, my favorite picture of the Dalai Lama is he was doing a, a lecture at, um, it may have been Yankee Stadium. I know it was a big outdoor baseball stadium in, in New York. And I, I think it was Yankee Stadium. And um, they had built this great throne in the middle, right on second base, you know. Uh, uh, this great throne, and it consisted of all kinds of beautiful trappings and pillows and pillows and pillows and everything else. And the Dalai Lama was supposed to go out and sit there in the midst of this great throne, which is not what he would have wanted, but that's what they built for him. So he goes out there and he climbs up the stairway they had built, and he's sitting on top of this great throne that consists of all these pillows and everything else. And he looks at the crowd, and he looks at the pillows, and he starts bouncing up and down <laughs> on the <laughs> pillows like a little kid jumping on a bed. Crowd went crazy, you know. I mean, he was just making, without saying a word, he was making fun of all uh -huh. the, the pomp and the circumstance that, you know, that we put in. And he began to sing that he's began his lecture by saying, I'm not going to tell you anything you don't already know. And then he went on to talk for an hour about <laughs> things that we all knew but didn't know we knew. Mm -hmm. What a what a great, great man. I'd, I'd love to meet him personally someday. I really would. Yeah, me too. I did see him once at the Beacon Theater in New York. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he that must have been something. Yeah. Giving a discourse on the teachings of Nagarjuna. Wow. Wow. That must have been some something. I've never heard him personally speak, and I it wish was, I could. It was awesome. Like you could just, like, and it was all in Tibetan. He had a translator. Yeah, yeah. But just being there with him was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I'll bet. I'll bet. Ah, uh, great time. Great yeah. time. I'll bet. Like, and I think, you know, it kind of brings us back. Like here, here's a guy. We kind of looked at him in a way to save us and guide us, mm -hmm. but yet we can't rely on that we have to do it ourselves yeah and maybe yeah. that's part of that's part of his message too you know when he yeah. tells people to stop and do what mm -hmm. you said and, and meditate mm -hmm. to calm the mind and really recognize what our true self is yeah yeah compare that to the religious leaders so many of religious leaders that are in the world today you know for 40 years uh, i was involved off and on more on than off with the, uh, the evangelical community of churches. Um, and when I look at what things were like back when I was active in the evangelical church, and I look and, and listen to some of the messages that I'm hearing from evangelical preachers today, it's so discouraging. Standing up, uh, the, the one guy, Midwest, I forgot his name, who gave the great sermon about... Uh, have your Bibles ready and your guns loaded, you know, that kind of thing. 
and uh, hearing some of the messages about, um, you know, uh, Jerry Falwell once said he was a, at one time he was even a hero of mine until I learned better. But at one time he said, we've got to get Christians, we've got to get people baptized and registered to vote and armed, you know, that kind of thing. What a, what a terrible, terrible thing we've come into. Somehow we've, we've got to escape the madness. Somehow we've got to get off the, the merry-go-round. And I wish I knew. Uh, shows like yours certainly will help because, I mean, technology can be a horrible thing, but it can be a wonderful thing. And here you have a chance to reach out of your room and, and touch an awful lot of people and get them thinking. So it's, it's important, and that's what we have to put our hope in. Yeah, I hope so. And I experienced that, too. When I worked in Alabama, I had a job where I was driving people to church, you know, evangelical yeah. churches. Yeah. And rarely did they ever talk about the teachings of Jesus. They talked yeah. about condemnation of other religions mm -hmm. and who to vote for. Yeah. And then the voting booths are actually in the churches, so. Oh, wow. Wow. Sad. Sad. Sometimes it makes you wonder what the future holds. Um, I know I get I get discouraged. Um, in Back in 1783, Edward Gibbon uh, wrote a book called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, classic, classic analysis of what made Rome fall. And he came up with five aspects, five cultural phenomena that actually destroyed the Roman culture and brought on the Dark Ages. Uh, and his five uh, reasons were so relevant for today. Number one, uh, he said in the Roman Empire with the Colosseum and with the Crusade, I mean, not with the Crusader, with the, uh, uh, you know, gladiators and everything mm -hmm. else, he said sports and entertainment received more and more money every year while the plight of the poor in Rome was neglected. Um, that's for today. Yeah. The second one thing, he said that most of the money went to the military rather than the public good. The third aspect was that violence in both games and public life became more and more accepted and prevalent. Uh, the violence with the gladiators killing animals and then killing each other and everything else. I, I, I love football, but I can't help but think of gladiators right. on, on the field. And it became more and more accepted and prevalent. The fourth thing he said, that people's faith in government was undermined and justly so. People stopped believing in their government. And the fifth was that religion grew fragmented and became a cause of dissension rather than unity. He might as well have been talking about our, our time. Uh, and that's what, and, and when that happened, and those four aspects, began, those five aspects began to build and grow, Rome eventually fell. Uh, it, was a, it was a real, real tragedy. But uh, are we any different? Well, I like to hope so, but I don't know. I don't know. What is it you think happened with religion? How did something that was supposed to bring people together give us moral values and guide us in the right direction turn into something that I don't even know what it is now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 
I think if we go back to the beginning of just about every world religion, we start with a founder who had a shamanic experience, a spiritual experience. Um, Moses met God at, through the burning bush, mm -hmm. and he heard the voice of God saying, go to these people and, and give them my message. And Moses said, who shall I say sent me? And God gave the great message, I am that I am. And so Moses had that. It was a shamanic experience, an out-of-body experience where he went out of his body, saw something that was totally outside this perception realm, received a message, and then came back to give that message to his tribe. That's shamanism in a nutshell right there. Uh, same thing happened to Jesus. Uh, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, and he went out in the wilderness. And there in the wilderness, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, we're told. Of course, I think it's metaphorical, but still, I mean, you, the message is the same. And out there, he had a, a vision. Uh, he met the devil, and the devil gave him three temptations, and he overcame evil. Uh, he resisted the temptations, and then came back and preached the Sermon on the Mount, the basis of Christianity. Uh, same thing happened with Muhammad. He went out, um, married a rich widow <laughs> who was running caravans, and that gave him the time to go out to his cave. And he went out in this cave and he meditated and he prayed and he meditated and he prayed until finally the angel Gabriel appeared to him and said, write. And the result was the Quran, how to live. Uh, Buddha, the same thing. He had a, um, a spiritual search he was involved in and it, it just getting worse and worse and he wasn't getting anywhere until he finally took his place underneath the bow tree and was given the three temptations just like Jesus you know Mara the devil the Buddhist devil came to him and gave him the three temptations and he resisted them and saw his way to a new way of living he called it the middle way and uh, he had the four noble truths and he came back and he preached a sermon just like Jesus did it was called the Deer Park Discourse and just like Jesus he had 12 disciples come around him all of those began, religion began, with a shamanic experience of an out-of-body experience of, of vision with the uh, reality, the source, so to speak. And then they came back to deliver the message. That became the problem because followers came around these people. Uh, whereas first, in terms of the shamanic vision, we have to term about spirituality the followers decided to take the vision of the founder and encase it with an offense of laws and doctrines and dogmas and traditions. And that's when religion was born. Um, I don't think Jesus or Moses or Muhammad or Buddha thought that they were starting a new religion. They came back with a spiritual vision. It was their followers who encased those ideas in so many traditions and levels of dogma and doctrine and finally said, our guy's vision was the right one, yours wasn't. Um, we have a different way of expressing it. We're putting different rules around it. And uh, this is how you got to do it. And as a result, we developed religion. So were the founders following a human-inspired idea? No. Were their followers yeah, they definitely did it. They definitely um, built a religion, and those religions became, instead of compatible with one another, fighting with one another. So you got, oh, Jews and Palestinians. Uh, you've got 
Christians and Jews. You've got two different kinds of Christianity fighting against each other. You've got all of these different things. Kill them in the name of Christ, you know, and the Crusades and all the rest of this stuff. Religion just became a perverted um, oh, deathbed, I think, for the original founders. I mean, we got to get back to the beginning. That's why when people say, well, what religion should I? I says, follow your own. It's it's there. It's at the root of it. But you just got to go back to what the original root is and get away from all the doctrines and dogmas. If you're if you're a Christian, sure, go back to Jesus Christ and study what he said. And if you're a Muslim, go back and, and study the words of Muhammad. And on and on, you know, we just perverted that original vision. I think it's, it's, it's a shame. One of the things these all have in common is the methodology of what they've used to contact the divine and yes. have that out-of-body out experience to find the truth. Maybe it was just for themselves, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, this is how I did it. This is how I found my truth. And yeah. we've, maybe we spent too much time focusing on what the each individual experienced rather than how they had that experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that probably goes back to the very beginning, you know? humans became anatomically correct at least 200 years, 200,000 years ago, maybe 300,000 years ago, maybe more. But for a long time, nothing much happened in the archaeological record till about 45, 50,000 years ago, and maybe more. We began to have these uh, gifted shamanic elite. They broke through and they saw something, and they wanted to uh, show what they found, what they saw, their vision, their shamanic vision. So they crawled way back into the great painted caves of Europe, you know, and they uh, they went back into these caves that were dank and dark and dismal, and any other word beginning with D you can think of, <laughs> and they began to try to paint their vision on the wall. And one had a vision of, say, um, oh, a lion came to him. And the other had a vision of a bison who came to him. Uh, and they received these messages from the animal kingdom. So one painted a lion and one painted a, um, a bison. And then they came out of the cave and they told their tribes what that message was. And immediately those who followed the guy who painted the lion, I think they formed a denomination called Lionites. And then the one who painted the bison, they formed the Bisonites. And pretty soon, saying they started arguing with each other, their followers in the next generation would say, no, God is a lion. No, God is a bison. And they would start fighting with each other about who God was. It seems to be the human trait where we just take that original, beautiful, gorgeous vision and then just say, this is the way it is. And if you don't believe this, you're wrong. What a What a tragedy. Boy, do I sound discouraged today or what? <laughs> it, it, what it, it is, though, is it is a lesson to, um, I don't know. I think it's important. One of my whole premises of my podcast is to put information out there for people yeah. to be able to experiment with for themselves to find their own truth. Yeah. You know, whether it's through meditation, whether it's through binaural beads or yeah. ayahuasca or mm -hmm. um, just retreating to nature, however yeah. people want to do it. Um, you know, I, I encourage people to experiment with different things and have their own experiences. It has to be. Or, or to extraterrestrial be. contact, whatever you want to call it, angelic yeah. contact. Sure, sure. 
seances. I, 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 I don't care what it is. <laughs> yeah. The source is infinite, and there are infinite pathways to the source, but we all wind up at the same place if we follow that. Uh, I, Joe Campbell had a wonderful way of doing this. He, he, he said he, he compared religion and, and spirituality, rather, to uh, uh, computers. And for those who didn't follow Joseph Campbell, he was a great, wonderful mythologist. Uh, he knew more about myths probably than anybody alive in his time. And uh, he, he would say that the source or God is the hardware of the computer that sits on your desk. But he said you can access that hardware with a lot of different kinds of software. There are only and this and this and any any of the softwares they'll get you to the source. The trouble is the software doesn't agree with each other. They won't talk to each other. So he said, find your software and stick with it. One one piece of software, you know, don't and and just stick with it and follow it through to the source. You'll get there. But software gets all messed up when it starts talking, and this kind of software does it one way, and that kind of software does it another way. Uh, I think that's a wonderful way of saying it, you know, which is just another way of saying what you just said. There's so many different ways. Find your way and stick to it. Follow it in. What do you think it is? Do you think people are afraid of yeah. having these experiences, of finding their own truth, and yeah. that's why they find, well, go to preachers and cults and whatever yeah and that's the problem too because where did that fear come from it came from not spirituality it came from religion uh, fears are built into religion because the people who run the religions have discovered that the best way to keep people in line is to make them afraid uh, I, I, have we, to hit, we, I have to hit pause for a second I apologize okay, okay. All right, and we're back on. Wow, yeah. So, you know, sorry about that. I you know, just had a family emergency. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I, it was a quite a family emergency. I, I kind of lost my train of thought. I forgot where we were. I was I'm really, <laughs> really sorry to sorry to hear. You know, I'm so sorry to hear the news. I, you know, best best to you and your family. Thanks. You know, and, and there it is, though. You know, we're not here forever. No, that's right. You know, that's right. Losing uh, losing a a loved one can be a, a a real strange thing because we approach it at two different levels. Our our uh, our minds uh, know the mourning and the loss and the regrets and all that. And our hearts like to say that, well, someone else has returned to the source, which is a good thing. Uh, and that dichotomy between what our minds tell us and what our hearts tell us is it's very difficult to, uh, to reconcile. Uh, people like to say that's what faith is about. You know, faith, according to the Bible, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But then our minds come in and say, well, prove it, <laughs> you know, prove that there's an afterlife and all this kind of thing. And uh, it's it's difficult. I think it's getting easier and easier to prove it because mm -hmm. of all of the circumstantial evidence and even science is going toward that regard now. I saw an email, I mean, uh, a YouTube video this morning uh, before I went and did my meditation. I watched a YouTube um, presentation by uh, 
Evan Alexander about his after his near-death experience. Yes, I've had him on. Very eloquent, very eloquent man. And uh, it was just a wonderful way to start the day to hear him talk about it, how it can just change your life. So, yeah, I've never talked to him personally. I envy you, your <laughs> experience. He's, he's quite a guy, quite a guy. Yeah. It, it, but it all sort of ties in again to, you know, um, you're talking about, you know, with religions, we took it on faith and conviction and things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. However, you know, somebody like you or somebody like me or somebody like Evan, we've had that experience and are still alive and yeah. are able to be like, okay, well, I, I know this. Yeah. You know, what makes this hard, usually for me anyway, is the living. You know, living without yeah. that person. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Living out without them, or at least living without them in a physical form. Yeah. Yeah. And it goes back to what we were talking about before, too, about knowing what is possible and, and, and knowing that we're down here in, in school, so to speak, to gather these experiences. And by definition of individuality, it's a world of duality. It's going to be, there's going to be good and there's going to be bad. And even though we know that it's all temporary, we're still stuck here in it. Hmm. And uh, the bad sometimes it just seems it it, the, it, it seems to be more sorrowful. Um, I've been reading another book for about the third time. I've been reading this book now um, about um, oh by um, um, ah old age. I'm 76 years old. Something my mind doesn't doesn't work. Um, uh, but he's he's talking about uh, dealing with uh, counseling people who are spiritually enlightened, spiritually opened up, and find themselves on a roller coaster going up and down, and tremendous faith and then tremendous doubts. And he seems to say that that's more uh, normal. Uh, the people who live quiet, placid lives are generally the ones who don't examine very much. Uh, even Henry David Thoreau talked about the unexamined life is really not worth living. Uh, and sad to say, most of most of humanity today is probably living their life just from oh, from day to day, but not in a good way, in a bad way, uh, just going about the motions and never digging deep enough. And when you said, "What about fear?" Uh, I think, yeah, the fears of what could possibly be and all the scenarios we can come up with are so big that we do tend, I think, sometimes to to simply be more more afraid because of what we have been taught. Uh, After Jesus rose from the dead, the Bible says, according to the story, that he appeared to this person and appeared to that person and others. And his first words were always the same, fear not. <laughs> uh, they were afraid. And I, I love the, the book of, uh, of First John that says, perfect love casts out fear. So I think we have to, in this life, when, when we're dealt with those fears and, and worries and anxieties, I don't think we have to seek ways to get rid of the fears that's a negative way. I think we have to find ways to embrace the love because perfect love casts out fear. It's like filling up a, oh, you've got a bunch of stuff 
floating around the bottom of a glass, the way to get rid of it is to fill the glass full of water and it'll all flow out. And that's what we have to do. Fill ourselves with love. Fill ourselves with compassion. And uh, all the rest of the bad stuff, the fears, they'll just float out with the tide. Yeah, you know, fear, fear is definitely a heart of, of our at the heart of our conflicts. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, we 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 are afraid of anything that's different than us. Yeah, or experiences yeah. reality different. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, that's why we're here. We're here to experience reality yeah. from different points of view. Yeah, the the Buddha said it beautifully in the Four Noble Truths uh, when he said, "All life uh, is sorrowful." Uh, he might have might as well have said all life is fearful, um, and he didn't mean by that that uh, our lives are miserable. It's just that even in the greatest moments, there's always that fear that we can't hang on to it. The knowledge that the, even the greatest moments we have, when we're perfectly happy, we know that it's not going to last, mm. and that's the first noble truth. All life is sorrowful, and he said sorrow comes from desire. Uh, and a lot of desires are based on fear, where you know we we want and we don't have, or we're afraid of losing what we do have, and that's why we buy all these insurance policies and everything else. And we always think if we can just obtain this, or if we can just get through this, or if we can just do that, then everything will be fine. And deep down inside, we're afraid it's not going to be. So the second ne ne uh, noble truth is that all the sorrows of life are caused by desire. We desire to keep what we have. But then comes the third noble truth, which is where things change and turn positive. There can be an end to desire. Um, we can put an end to fears. We can put an end to desire. We can put an end to desire, to wanting, to greed, to everything else. And when that happens, uh, all of a sudden, uh, desire goes. And when desire goes, then the, the sorrow, sorrow stops. So that leads us to the fourth noble truth of how do you obtain that? Well, that's the fourth, the fourth noble truth consists of the eightfold path, mm -hmm. which we really can't go into. But the eightfold path of Buddhism is a way of living um, that uh, involves the absence of all of the hypocrisy, and the absence of all the greed. Uh, I think we're seeing that right here in our own, in our own country right now. Um, you know, we're talk, talking about the price of gasoline going way up. And so we're finding, trying to find someone to blame. So we blame this person or blame that person, this president or that former president or the, some foreign country or something like that. And yet at the same time that the price of gasoline is going high and high, and we say, how are we going to get it down? How are we going to get it down? We look and see that the, the uh, corporations, the gas companies, are running record profits for the last two years. Record profits, and, and we're trying to blame somebody else. Come on. You just can't do that. You know, It's greed. Greed at the corporate level. And we can do the same thing with all the major companies in the world today. And with most people, greed, we always want more. Always want more. And that's going to lead to the fear of not getting it. Or the fear of, once we have it, fear of losing it. Uh, and it's a it's it's a terrible terrible way to live, and it's so easy to get rid of. But it's we just don't do it. Just stop the fear. Stop trying to want this or desire that or stop the greed. Um, it's oh, 
we can keep going. Dalai Lama, where are you when we need you? Right. Right. <laughs> if, you, if you have everything you need, you have a you know bed to sleep in and food and air to breathe and some love. Yeah, and that's more than ninety ninety percent of the human population has had throughout our entire existence of three hundred thousand years. And that's we it. Are, that's all we need. We, yeah, we yeah. are extremely blessed. I I built this house out in the woods. That uh, to me. Uh, I just wanted something very simple, very efficient, and everything else. And it has a, a, a central room with a kitchen and a living room all in one room. And it has a, a bathroom, and it has a bedroom, and it has a small little office where I'm sitting right now. And uh, to me, it was just a simple little house out in the middle of the woods. Mm -hmm. uh, living in it now, sometimes it seems huge. I'm wondering, why did I build it so big? <laughs> you know, um, we... No one needs this much stuff, mm -hmm. but it just seems to accumulate. Uh, ah, here we go again. I'm getting negative again. <laughs> uh, I don't want to say you bring out the negativity in me, Gary. I think it's probably just the way things are nowadays. Um, and we are recording this on election day, which means the television is going to be bombing us all day with fears, you know. <sighs> Yeah. They want to get people out to vote. So how do you get people to vote? You make them make them afraid, <laughs> make them very afraid. Yeah, they've reached a whole new level of fear mongering. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. That's for sure. Uh, when will we learn? Yeah, just love each other. Yeah, yeah, Eat. absolutely. Listen to music. Yeah. Yeah. I I think listening to music is, is even more important. I had a conversation today with a former art teacher who was so discouraged because she had taught art in the elementary school all of her life. And, uh, her job, her whole department was just eliminated. No more art. Uh, music was eliminated before. No more music. And I can't help but think of that wonderful movie that I like, uh, so much mr holland's opus mm -hmm. uh, i love that movie because i've taught all those kids <laughs> in my life as a music teacher and i think of that wonderful thing at the end where uh, they said they got to get rid of music and they got to get rid of art uh, because the kids need science and the kids need math and uh, the kids need something that'll give them a life and he said yeah it'll give them a life and it takes away everything that makes life worth living oh what a what a sad thing. So I guess that brings us back full circle to uh, hatred and the muse, which is all about music and the yeah. importance of music and what can happen. I love music, and it does bring people together. And yeah, and yeah. two, you know, when when I'm in the zone, sometimes I, I hit that place where I'm not the one playing the music anymore. Mm -hmm. And you know, before I know it, an hour or two has passed by, and I'm still playing. Yeah. And it's like, wow, what happened? You know, it's like yeah. having that out-of-body yeah. experience just through playing music and, and kind of like letting it flow through me and sort of puts you like in a little bit of a yeah. trance. And Yeah, give me the beat, boys, and free my soul. I want to get lost in your rock and roll and yep. drift away. Yeah, uh, music is vibration, and all of life is vibration. And that's what the scientists are telling us. It's all different vibrations, what we can experience. It, it uh, Here I'm going to go get negative again, but I've been thinking about this a lot recently because I've been wanting to get away from television because of all of the uh, the hollering and, 
it occurred to me one night when I was watching, I, I guess it was NCIS. I'm a real NCIS fan. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me that uh, every single episode starts with a murder. Um, uh, all the time I was growing up as a young, young kid, and I'm older than I'm sure many of your followers, but uh, we never came up to murder. Even the Lone Ranger, he always shot the gun out of their hands. He never killed the bad man, you know, and uh, all this kind of thing was going on. I, I, I see more murder and mayhem now in a week just by watching entertainment on television than I did in the first 10 years of my life. Um, it just become more and more normal. But during that time, I look back to that time of childhood and I remember one of my most favorite things to do in the world when I got out of school, if I wasn't playing basketball or if I wasn't playing soccer with the kids or something like that, with baseball in the summer, what I love to do is put on a, a symphony, a Brahms symphony, a Beethoven symphony, a Schumann symphony, and just lay down on the couch and listen to it all the way through, you know, 30, 40, 45 minutes of just uninterrupted music. And I find that now something has happened in my life. Uh, the more I meditate, the more I try to establish that kind of thing, the less patience I have. I always want to, I'll skip through the dull parts, you know, get to the good stuff, get to the last movement where mm -hmm. the brass and the timpani go off. And I find I just don't have that kind of patience that allows me just to sit and listen to a symphony all the way through. I can do it, but it's almost effort. My mind starts to wander and everything else. And that bothers me because it makes me think that perhaps the human race is, we are evolving perhaps in a way that is not, not very good. If you can't express yourself on 150 characters or 120 characters or whatever it is, uh, you're not interested. Uh, I, when I go through YouTube, I have YouTube on my television. We disconnected from the television itself, but uh, do a lot of streaming. And one of the things I like to go is through these wonderful YouTube videos. But I find myself sometimes saying, man, if it's more than 10 or 15 minutes, I don't want to watch it. It's too long. You know, what a, what are we doing to ourselves? Uh, it's scary. It's scary. And this in the middle of a podcast, which is going to last, what, an hour, an hour and a half? <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, we are strange creatures, Gary. <laughs> we, we are. We, we are. And we have shortened things up. Everything's become a sound bite or a meme or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I'm not saying it's necessarily bad, but I'm saying, what are we going to do to our kids? Uh, is their concentration getting smaller and smaller. I tend to think it maybe is. Mm, I hope not. Yeah, me, me too. I hope not. Because you're going to need the focus <laughs> to fix yeah. this mess. Yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. So, I want to thank you for oh, taking the you. time to be on today. Oh, chat always, my, always my pleasure. And uh, I'm really sorry for the news you received halfway through about losing someone in your family like that. It's, thank you. So, just know uh, thoughts and prayers sounds kind of lame sometimes we say it so often but mm -hmm. sometimes it's all we can do and and you've got mine that's for sure uh, i appreciate it thank you uh, thank you gary and uh before we wrap it up too where's the best place for my listeners to find you uh just probably go to the website uh www.jimwillis.net and there on the opening page you'll find a a link to my facebook page 
you'll find a link to my YouTube page. We have all kinds of videos out there. Um, we have, and all the projects are listed and all the books are listed and everything else. Uh, coming up this spring, we're looking forward to the release of two new books. Uh, one is called Gather Ye Wisdom While Ye May. That that title may change. <laughs> it's it's a kind of a uh, it's a kind of a, a, a autobiography, but basically it takes the decades of American history, beginning with the decades of the fifties, the sixties, the seventies, eighties, nineties, right up to the present, and uh, it asks the question: while that the cultural ramifications of that decade were playing out, what was it like to be a spiritual seeker? And I tell my own story about trying to find God in the 50s and trying to find God in the 60s and the 70s. And it's, it's all quite a different experience. So that that's coming out after the first year. And then in March, I have, an, I have a book coming out called uh, American Cults. And even though the book is coming out in March, uh, Amazon already has it up for presale and uh, covers all kinds of American cults beginning way back to the pilgrims and the Puritans who were considered cults when they were forced out of Europe and came here. Uh, and, and all the different cults, uh, some of them, it was very depressing to write about some of them, I've got to say that. Uh, it especially bothered me because it seemed like when you're talking about cult leaders such as uh, Jim Baker and Jim Jones and Jimmy Swigert, and why are all these preachers named Jim? That kind of scared me a little bit. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that book's coming out in March, but like I say, it is available for pre-sale. And we're right in the middle of um, recording an audio book right now for a book called Sabuco and Me, which is a story that uh, tells the story of my spiritual guide and, and, and me since I came out here in the woods. And that's that's kind of fun because, once again, we're collaborating with a good friend of mine, who I've never met, uh, except over the internet. He's out in India. His name is Ajit Padmanabh. And he's doing the music for it. And of course, my daughter is doing the production and recording all the sound effects and all that kind of stuff. So between the three of us, uh, we have a, a real a, a fun time. Uh, I used Ajit's music when I did uh, Wizard in the Wood, which is my mm -hmm. first work of fiction, and did the audiobook for that. And uh, that's also, uh, I'm, I'm really proud of that work. Uh, what the three of us were able to do together that's up on amazon the wizard in the wood and uh oh other other videos are coming up this coming sunday i'm doing a um, a zoom conference with five chapters of the british society of dowsers and uh, we're really looking forward to that and when that con when that is over we'll probably have something up on our youtube page about that too awesome so net. <laughs> All right, and there'll be a link to that in the notes of this episode for my listeners Great. to find you, get your book, check out the audio books, watch the videos. Great. And contact you. you, I guess, if they need you. Oh, I hope they can. My my webpage has a contact page, and I love to hear you and I talk to each other like this, but we don't know who's listening. Right. So it's nice to have <laughs> it's nice to have people uh, write to the contact page, and I, I try to answer everyone personally if I can. Yeah, I like it too. I like to know what people think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Gary. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Hang on for one moment, and I'm just going to play the outro. Okay. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com 
or message him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the cost of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of this page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. You can also buy the book Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. You can find it on Amazon and it will change your life. Because remember, everything that it says was first imagined. love what you listen to today, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. Again, thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable with Gary Cochulia.